The title sponsor of Hunt Talk Radio is Leupold. Leupold Optics are the trusted optics of accomplished hunters and shooters. If it has a gold ring on it, you know it was built by American hands in Beaverton, Oregon. Whether it's a new rifle scope, binocular, a spotter, rangefinder, or eyewear, go to leupold.com to learn more and look for these fine Leupold products at your high-quality retailers. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Welcome to Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. As I was walking, I saw something on the side. Folks, Randy Newberg here today. I hope you are all doing as wonderful as I am. Uh, I'm in my studio here in uh, Bozeman, Montana. And today is a special podcast. I never thought I'd get this chance. Uh, This is late last summer. uh, I had a person on our podcast who I would say when Heather DeVille was on our podcast, it was the most commented uh, podcast that we've done for many years. Uh, Heather lives uh, in Craig, Alaska on Prince of Wales Island, uh, has an Instagram page, AK Moosey. Uh, and if you've listened to that podcast, you know her story and, and what she's doing. If you haven't, I would suggest you go back and, and maybe find that episode and listen to it because there's a lot of uh, building, if you want to call it that, foundation of what we're going to talk about in this podcast that comes from that one. And uh, I told Heather, I said, your dad, uh, Mike, is so fascinating, so full of knowledge. Thanks so much for putting him on your Instagram channel. He is teaching skills and and he's doing it in a way where he's just real matter of fact about, well, this is what I've done all my life and here's how you do it. And it's all about procuring wild food, caring and, and processing wild food and preserving it. And his stories about, you know, growing up in Alaska before, uh, a lot of people don't realize Alaska became a state in 1959. Mike was living there kind of in the wilds uh, on this island before statehood. And I was so thankful when Heather called me and said, hey, my dad said he'd, he'd, he'd be on your podcast. Uh, I, that's just, it's so kind of him because uh, uh, what I've learned in following Mike uh, through Heather's cha- Instagram channel is that he doesn't have a lot of use for uh, promotion or, you know, being the, in the limelight or anything. So that he would take time and share his knowledge and his story is uh, is something I'm super grateful for. Uh, Heather's going to be here uh, along on the podcast also. Uh, I I hope that we can jump right into it. Uh, Heather said, you know, my dad, he, sometimes he, you got to warm him up. So uh, uh, I I don't have any doubt 
that Mike is going to be just this fountain of information, history, perspective. Uh, and one of the things I want to touch on in this podcast, and I don't know if Mike and Heather are, are going to be comfortable doing it, but I want to talk about it. And I told Heather and Mike this is there's this thing called the Marine Mammal Protection Act that people may not realize how negatively, I guess, what negative consequences that piece of federal legislation has placed on indigenous peoples who are affected by it, whether it's what they eat, their cultural traditions, how overpopulation of some of those marine mammals are impacting their food security and their food sources. Uh, it's it, Heather and I have had a lot of discussions on this topic offline, and I had no idea. And I suspect that a lot of us have no idea how this is impacting them. Um, so I'm just really thankful for, uh, Mike and Heather letting me kind of be this person on the outside, looking in, trying to understand, trying to be more aware, more knowledgeable and how gracious they've been in sharing their knowledge and their time and everything else. Uh, I hope when you're done with this podcast, you, you, go out to Heather's Instagram page, AK Moosey, uh, and you follow along because it's, if ever there's an example of how social media can be super beneficial, I think Heather has hit the bullseye on that. So anyhow, that's what we're here to talk about. I have no idea where it will go. I'm interested in hearing Mike's story about growing up uh, as a, uh, a Tlingit member uh, in in uh, Craig, Alaska, out on the island, and what that was like, how it brought him to where he is today, uh, being kind of the mentor or one of the mentors and elders in his community who teach these skills. Uh, I, I think it's just fascinating to watch. So hopefully you enjoy it as much as I do. And as always, thanks for being here. Well, folks, uh, I, I'm going to start hitting the record button here. I have two guests that I am so excited to have. One is a return guest. Uh, Heather Duvel was on this podcast oh, three or four months ago, and all of you were fascinated by her story, by all the things she talked about. And today we're blessed even more to have her dad, Mike, who is the, I mean, he's the mentor uh, of a lot of stuff that, that Heather's been doing. And uh, I'm just, I've been waiting for this one for so long. I, uh, Mike, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time and, and being willing to share your stories and, and your perspectives and, and just uh, the, the way that you've grown up and and how your life has has unfolded in your connection to land and and, in your culture just all these things that heather started touching on she would keep referring to and my dad and my dad so uh i think our audience is like where's heather's dad where's mike we gotta we want to hear from mike so uh Thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure. Uh, you know, I grew up in Craig, a population like 150 uh, for 
my first five years, I guess. And then uh, my stepfather took a job in Edna Bay, which is even smaller. It was a logging camp in uh, <laughs> 1954 or 55 we went there. And he was uh, employed by the logging camp for maybe close to three years or two years at least. And it was smaller, one-room schoolhouse, all uh, all eight grades in one room, uh, right right on the beach at recess. We uh, they'd turn everybody loose, and we'd go play on the beach. You know, there was no playground, there was nothing. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so where is that in relation to Craig? It is uh, probably northwest about. Uh, maybe 30 miles, air miles, okay. as the crow flies. Uh, close to Warren Island, if you know Warren, Warren Island is, but uh, right right in that area, in Sea Otter Sound. Okay, cool. So you did that till you were how old? Uh, I think in the, the third grade, we moved back to uh, Craig. And it was, uh, yeah, oh, it was just a... Like first grade when we moved, mm-hmm. uh, it was okay. Uh, different big logging camp. Uh, the logging industry was just taking off, uh, like industrial logging in the early fifties. Uh-huh. Uh, before or uh, at that time, all the timber on Prince of Wales Island was virtually all standing, all old growth, beautiful forests. You know. It's a far cry from what it is today. Most of it's all been cut down, and the geography is just changed. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. Probably not a lot of roads at that time. If there wasn't a lot of logging, there. The longest road was between Craig and Cloak, and it's like about five and a half miles. <laughs> and and they had just completed that. Perhaps when I was a little kid, it was a one lane road. And it did have, you know, maybe a handful of turnouts, so cars would meet each other, and it was a challenge to see who was going to back up to the turnout so they could pass each other. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, you've seen a lot of change then, because if someone went to Craig, Alaska now on Prince of Wales Island, they'd think oh well this has always been a town of you know a thousand or fifteen hundred people and always had all these things but you you you, you have a different probably view of it uh, just based on how long you've lived there and and uh seen all these changes during the three the three seas era uh, i think that was depression area the 30s uh, i can't remember exactly when but anyway like about a mile of that road was built by hand through the the three seas program they call it you know uh, roosevelt yeah. getting yeah. civilian conservation yeah. or yeah and that's where the uh the totem park and clock originally started as they put them to work carving totem poles and that's the origin of that totem park which has been recarved and they're doing a good job of maintaining it but before that there was a trail between craig and cloak and if you didn't want to walk the trail then you uh you rode your canoe or your boat uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> but that that so that it, was the longest it, road. And it, now we have thousands of miles wow. of you know logging road. Some of it's usable and some of it's not. But yeah. Well, in the prior podcast, Heather was talking about uh, the Tlingit, uh culture uh, being uh, matriarchal and clans and. Do the totems, are, are they associated with a clan or with some other part of the culture? Because it, for those of us who are on the outside and we see them, we're like, man, how cool is that? But I'm sure there's some story and some meaning and some purpose to them that is more than just for tourists to look at. Some are memorial poles. Some are memorial poles. Some tell, um, you know, a story of an event that took place or they have um, representation of the clan or clan family. And so some, you know, it just depends on the creator and the time it was created and, and the figures on the poles, you know, you read, you read them from the ground up. So the, the, actually the figure on, the bottom, the base, which is the most significant figure. I mean, you know, they have we have that inappropriate saying like low man on the totem pole, which is not okay to say, but actually the lowest figure is the most significant in reading reading the story of those. And the story begins at that bottom base figure and you know interweaves throughout the the pole until you get to the top which um so go ahead dad the the totem park and cloak was the three c's but uh uh just before like like about 1900 uh, one or two or something governor brady uh went through southeast and was gathering poles for the uh the world's fair in louisiana i believe it was 1904 mm-hmm. so he picked up poles uh my great-grandfather donated a pole from the, his village of Texican, which was abandoned at that time the people there moved to cloak because there was a cannery there of salmon cannery and they could get employment and he donated that pole, and uh, they took these poles and renovated them with cement and painted them, and and they took them to Louisiana and put them up for the World's Fair. So then they, after the fair, they didn't know what to do with them, and they shipped them back, and they went to Sitka. <laughs> really? <laughs> and they actually... They were getting in kind of bad shape because they weren't new in the 19, you know, at that time. But they they dug these big pits, and I don't know what kind of chemical they put in them, but they put the poles in there to soak them and try to uh, do a wood preservative kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think it worked. <laughs> but they didn't know what to do with them, and they they put them up in the park. In, uh, it's a... The National Park Service in Sitka, and they put erected those poles. And since then, they've been recarved uh, once or twice, and that's where that park started. So, uh, 
but the poles came from various places in southeast uh, Kasan, uh, Tuxican. Uh, anyway, but that's that's where that park came from. Yeah. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is brought to you by Go Hunt. It's application season, and if you're like me and you want to have the best hunting season of your life, well, that all starts with getting tags during application season. So if you want to have all that information we use right at your fingertips, go out to GoHunt.com and sign up. Promo code Randy is going to get you $50 of store credit. Put in your account when you sign up using promo code Randy. Nosler Ammunition is the official ammunition of Hunt Talk Radio and every other platform that we produce. Nosler was founded in 1948 by John Nosler. And over that time, Nosler Ammunition has proven time and again why so many hunters and shooters trust Nosler. Whether it's Nosler bullets, components, or their premium grade ammunition, Nosler's reputation at quality shines through. We shoot exclusively Nosler E-tips, Acubons, and partitions in all of our rifles. And all of those can be found at Nosler.com or look for them at fine retailers near you. So growing up there, Mike, how, how, where did you learn? I guess I'm, I'm just, I'm just so curious because I, I watch Heather's Instagram page and you are there, you, the way you're taking care of fish, the way that you are building so many things from just materials that are there on the landscape, all these traditional foods that you're creating. It, was there somebody there who was teaching you all of this, like, you, you know, community members or family members? I, how it, or is it just, well, I figured it out. You know, I, I've, I've been around long enough that I, I had to figure it out. No, you learn, well, growing up in Craig at that time, there was two little tiny grocery stores. And if you had money, you could go to the store. But most people put away their own food. We didn't have a freezer or a refrigerator um, until I was probably in my teens. So... Uh, the food that you put away had to be uh, had to be dried, had to be canned. We used to be able to get cans from the salmon cannery. They always made extra ones for you know you could buy them, and we had a sealer, and we could do our own canned salmon and actually canned meat uh, if we could get deer. Deer were hard to hard to get. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, deer was difficult, very difficult to get when I was growing up until I became a teen. Uh, but you learned how to put away a lot of food because if you didn't, uh, you might go hungry. Yeah. So people dug clams. They got their own, uh, went jigging red snappers. We didn't have fishing poles. We used um, a cotton line and a lead and a bait and a you did this by hand, you know, and the, because there was no fishing poles. We didn't, I never owned one until I was in my teens. <laughs> so, but you but caught a lot did. of fish. Yeah, we caught fish. Huh. I Wait, mean, well, on a good, on a good day when, you know, you're fish hungry, needed something besides something that was canned. We'd go out in one of the little trollers, um, Elwood Thomas's boat was 
one of the primary ones. And we didn't even have a depth sounder or fathom meter. So you, you did have charts so you could uh, draw the lines on a, on a chart, line up this and that and get on a, on a spot, uh, mm-hmm. shallow a pinnacle or whatever, and, and drop your lines. And it was cold. We never had good clothes or gloves. <laughs> your hands would get numb. Or, but we did. It was. We were so happy to get fresh fish. Yeah. So, why was deer hunting so difficult then? Had they been over hunted when the CCC crews came through, or just? No, the CCC, the the three C crews were local. Oh, okay. Uh, but we had real strong predation from wolf. Like, mm. uh, if you look back in the uh, Department of Fish and Game when they started keeping records, I can't remember, it was 20s or 30s or something. Like, Craig Clock and Heidelberg had similar populations but the limit on deer was one buck and the logging had never you know it was all virgin forest if you will mm-hmm. so predation was uh, so strong that there just wasn't much deer okay huh because people think of southeast alaska as kind of the home of sitka blacktails that there you drive down the road now from craig to hollis and you see see lots of deer along the road. Uh, to someone today, they'd think, "Oh, there's always been a lot of deer here." So that's that's interesting well, that they were hard to find. It didn't matter what time of the year if we could get them and get away with it. We did exactly that, you know, because we were hungry for meat, really. You know. To eradicate the wolves on Prince of Wales or Unit Two, I know I don't know how widespread it was, but I know they did it here. This one of my friends worked for them, and he was uh, uh, working in that program. So they actually poisoned the wolves. Mm. And in the 60s, like mid to late 60s and uh, to the mid-70s, uh, it just it just blossomed the deer. I mean, there was deer, lots of them. So you could go around one of the islands like St. John and see 50 on the beach in the winter. So. Wow. It's not like that now because the wolves have made a rebound, and that's been a real controversial issue, you know. So, mm-hmm. but uh, the predation was the, the leading factor in the deer population. Yeah. So but we struggled when I was a kid to get meat, man. Uh, season didn't matter. If we had a chance to get one, and we knew the fish cop where it was only one in Craig, and he was lazy anyway. So, <laughs> <I mean, laughs> <laughs> it didn't we always kept an eye on them but um yeah yeah no it's they, that's the hard part i think a lot of people have is trying to understand the difficulties and the challenges of even today in alaska but you roll back before statehood in 1959 and, and it's not like here, you know, just, well, let's go down to uh, whole foods or let, let's go to Safeway or something. It, a lot of people in the lower 48, even today think that, well, why, why do they got to do that? They just go to the store and 
there's especially i'm sure back in your time mike there had to have been a lot of really hungry people who were it was kind of like on the edge of how how they were going to get food well yeah you could get food uh, you know but our diet was different than what you think but to go to the store you also had to have money yeah. so i mean <laughs> with a depressed economy like you know no employment you know there's uh, it was the economy was totally based on fishing so mm-hmm. And that's seasonal, and you had to make it last till the next season. Or, or trapping uh, was was a big thing in the winter. Uh, everybody trapped mink, and uh, there was so much trapping going on that the season for a time only opened every other year. Oh, wow. Huh. So, and now nobody traps hard. Well, they, nothing like they did before. They've trapped martin now, but mink are virtually, you know, no one... There's really? really no good market for it. But when I was a kid, you know, they were worth 10 or $12. And if we could get a couple of those, we were in Fat City, you know? So. Yeah, <laughs> that was a big deal. So it, Heather was explaining to me in the last podcast, uh, I don't know what you called it, Heather, but it's the calendar. I think it starts in March with, with seals. Yeah, Dad, we talked about... You know, just like a Western calendar, January, February, March, and then compared that to our seasonal calendar surrounding traditional foods. So, you know, beginning in March with the seal harvest and then leading into April with the herring spawn and how, you know, we get a seal in preparation for that and how one thing kind of leads to another. and we don't necessarily start hunting deer when the season officially opens, but we hunt deer when we're done putting up fish. And then, you know, after I get my deer, which is usually one, then I start harvesting sea otter and try to balance your time and efforts to what is in yeah. season. And, it, so. and food security is still a, an issue here. You know, the cost of groceries are outrageous. And not only that, but the the shellfish that dad grew up harvesting and eating, a lot of those I have never tried because of, you know, the sea otter populations are flourishing and and things like that. So we are still harvesting foods and putting them up and living out of our freezers and and living that way um, with the land. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that, oh, they just decided that's how they were going to do this. This was a function of if you were going to eat, you had to adapt to what was available on the landscape or in the ocean or in the rivers at that time of year. It wasn't like you just decided, oh, well, I think March is the time we should hunt seals. Or this is the, you know, whatever time, we'll, we'll just go get herring roe off the kelp whenever we want. Every bit of this has a reason and a pulse and a, and a cycle to it. And I, I think about how foreign that concept is in today's world, especially in the lower 48. And that's why I'm so fascinated by how in tune and in touch all of you are with every season, every cycle, every possibility that food 
is there on on the landscape at different times and how you have all figured out how to build your your you know your food security around that and uh i i has that calendar kind of been in place kind of forever for lack of a better term i think so uh, you know growing up there was no food programs there was no food stamps there was there was nothing uh, there was no government help or or anything so you did have to put away your food you picked berries they, they were jarred uh, meat fish uh, the seal was my I learned a lot from my grandmother and my aunt my aunt lived with my grandmother uh, and took care of her and uh, she was very fluent and flingit, and she was the real knowledge keeper. Okay. Uh, Grandma knew a ton, but uh, Julia knew knew all the stories, all the know-how, and they were very strict. If you didn't do it right, they would you'd get chastised. So they'd explain <laughs> to you how to take care of things, uh, how to clean a seal, how to do all that stuff. And they wanted you to do it right, absolutely. So uh, I learned a lot from uh, from them. And, of course, I had friends that were knowledgeable that helped you along the way. And, and then as you get older, you learn how to uh, do it even better or better equipment or better knives or uh, whatever. So then you get good at it. Uh, Lots of practice. <laughs> One thing we talked about, just Dad and I talked about the other day, was um, just the cultural loss and and what had happened with the government and the the banning of our culture for you know about a fifty year period, and he had told me. Uh, one of the things that was able to really make it through that was the food, traditional foods preparation and harvesting and storing because that's what they relied on to survive. So even though a lot of the cultural things couldn't be, you know, legally be practiced, the traditional foods piece was a requirement to survive. So that through dad I've been able to learn and then you know through other people like the skin sewing that I know how to do I learned from my aunt so I just feel very fortunate to be able to have him here and be able to teach me what he knows and then through that those processes each season you know with our seasonal calendar he tells me stories about growing up and how it was when he was learning. So that's how we bridge that time gap yeah, as best we can. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is brought to you by Mystery Ranch Backpacks. For years, I've been using Mystery Ranch Packs. It might be the Metcalf or the Beartooth, the Sawtooth or the Pintler. No matter which Mystery Ranch Pack you choose, here's how you can save 10% on your purchase. Go to the Go Hunt Gear Shop, GoHunt.com, put a Mystery Ranch pack in your cart, and when you check out using promo code RANDY, 
you're going to save 10% off that pack and most of the other regular priced items in your cart. Mr. Ranch backpacks, can't beat them. Go check them out. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class is an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. You'll find courses by my buddy Corey Jacobson, Remy Warren, me, Hank Shaw, John Barklow, Jamie Teagan, and the list is growing and growing. And here's the other cool part. My buddy Corey, who founded the University of Elk Hunting course, the popular course that is everything known about elk hunting, his course is now part of your subscription to Outdoor Class. So, all for one subscription, at one price, you get all of the Outdoor Class courses, plus Corey's University of Elk Hunting. Go to OutdoorClass.com, use promo code Randy when you sign up, and you're going to save 20%. This will be great information for any hunter. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class, an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. Outdoor Class now includes the University of Elk Hunting course from my buddy Corey Jacobson. All these courses in one single subscription at one price. Go to OutdoorClass.com and use promo code Randy to save 20% when you sign up. This is great information for any hunter at any level. Well, and a lot of people may be aware, maybe aren't aware of just some of the things that seem so absurd today of how you couldn't practice a lot of your spiritual, religious, and other events, a lot of your language, a lot, actually, some of your citizens, some of your kids were placed into missionary schools, and and your language, you know, this oral history, as you explained before, Heather, when you do that, you disrupt these generational cycles of teaching and culture, and, and it's, in today's world, it's like, what? Uh, we did that? Yeah, we did that. And that's a huge consequence to this. Not only that, but you remove people from the land and the connection to the land and the food and where their food comes from. And there's a whole ripple effect of, you know, mental health issues, drug and alcohol issues. But I I still think you seeing some of that ripple effect, but when I was a younger kid and uh, it was it wasn't fun to watch. I mean, a lot of alcoholism, you know, was the main thing. It just devastated the people. Yeah, you know? and these were intelligent people. They had talent. You know, it yeah. was. Uh, but I did see a lot of that. It was, it was just really way bad, uh, just totally out of control. Yeah, it, it it killed a lot of them. So, mm-hmm. <clears throat> anyway, um, so you you kind of somehow through however you were able to do this, Mike, you've navigated through that. You have become this mentor, this teacher, and it's fascinating to put some context to how difficult it had to be 
given all of those, you know, legally implemented or illegally, but, uh, uh, you know, government implemented uh, damage and impairment to what your cultural traditions were and the food and the everything else. And somehow you and a few others navigated that. And here you are today sharing that. And that's what I think attracts so many people to Heather's Instagram page is they're, yeah. they're, it's, they're it's trying been a interesting ride actually, you know, um, you, you do learn because it, it is necessary if you want to live the life that I did. You know, I quit school when I was 16. Uh, I couldn't wait to quit school. They said, don't you stay in school. You'll never amount to nothing and da-da-da. Okay, yeah. For, but I couldn't wait to quit. And I, uh, somehow it was in my in me to be a fisherman. That's mm-hmm. all I wanted to do. Ever since I was uh, uh, pretty young, uh, I was trying to get hired on boats when I was nine, ten years old. <laughs> nah, you're, we don't want to talk to you. You're too young. And finally, when I was eleven, my stepfather took me trolling, and I didn't know if it was a good. I got seasick every day. And when I was twelve, I got seasick half the time, and then after that, I was okay. But. That started my fishing career, and I'm still fishing today. But uh, uh, I guess I wouldn't do anything different. You know, I, I still love it. But yeah. it, it was it, it was a challenge for very difficult for many many years. You know, uh, uh, moving away from home at. at age 16 and being homeless for several years, living on sane boats and crewing and so on. But it uh-huh. turned out okay. Well, it, but uh, it was, it, I mean, me, you do things a lot of other kids do that not supposed to, uh, you know, yeah, partying and this, this a whole uh, different thing. But anyway, it was, I'm glad I survived. When I survived that, it was okay. Things started uh, getting better. Yeah. <laughs> Mike's like, I don't know if I should tell these stories. My daughter's here listening. Have you heard, have, have, have you heard all these stories, Heather? Not in detail, but I got a lot of half-brothers <laughs> who are older than me. <laughs> what? I said, I haven't, I haven't heard the stories in detail, but I have a lot of half-brothers. <laughs> oh. Anyway. Well, there was a couple of reasons, or, or at least one more, why I quit school is that we had a really small school, and there was barely enough for a basketball team. And that's one of the only things that we had for recreation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when they decided that the school wasn't going to sponsor a basketball team, I started playing city league ball because I was a big kid. Mm-hmm. And I started hanging out with the older guys. And, I, you know, uh, and that it went from there. I never went back to school. And, you know, we traveled from town to town in the winter and played ball and 
partied and had a great time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dad, I was I was thinking about what Randy said about Instagram and yeah, we're going down a rabbit hole. Well, about Instagram and and more recently posting about the deer pack and the stomach and how that has really generated a lot of interest and questions. And I guess it, growing up and seeing deer in the garage or whatever, I mean, that's just how it was, you know, and that's how dad would pack them out. And I didn't even really think about a deer backpack that you could buy until I was an adult. Um, but uh, he was wondering, or he had asked me before, like, you know, the significance of packing the deer out whole and what we use it for yeah. and things like that. Yeah. The, the, well, when, when you posted that, Heather, did I see that that weighed 103 pounds or something like that? 107, that last one. And you care. The last one weighed 107, but I I struggled less the year before we got one. It weighed, you know, we weighed it because I'm like, oh, man, I felt accomplished. <laughs> the one before last year, it weighed 112 pounds, and I really struggled. I mean, I but talk about uh, being challenged physically and mentally. I was, I could see the light of the beach. And I thought I will not take one more up step. I will go carry this thing longer because I can't physically step up <laughs> like up a hill one more time. <laughs> uh, but the- And I just was like, you could do it. And I did it, but this year is easier. So I feel like I'm getting stronger and finding like dad now it really puts it into perspective because when I first learned to hunt, he would pack my deer and I would, you know, kind of go in front of him and he would say, find the easiest way, not the shortest. Well, I didn't really know what that meant until last year when he's going over logs and whatever. And I'm like, Oh heck no, I'm going to go all the way around here. It's easier. (laughs) Even though it's a longer distance, so uh, that that's just the way yeah. you guys have packed deer forever. Is that well? I learned it from my stepfather how to how to make that pack, and uh, some people pack them up and down, like the head up and down. But mm-hmm. It's it's a little bit more unstable, although it's a little bit easier on your shoulders. And, and trust me, this crossback does hurt your shoulders. Like that's why I make cut when I cut the packs like. Like cut them as, as to make them as big as you can, so uh, it does cut the circulation in your shoulders, and you just kind of have to bend over and take the pressure off once in a while. But well, what Heather has not seen is that when I would go hunting, I would go uh, a lot of times get two, and um, you know, in the sixties, you know, if we can get a buck, which we were good hunters when I was a teenager, we'd shoot a lot of does. Yeah. And that's actually was the preferred meat for the old timers. You know, they didn't care about bucks. Doe yeah. was just fine. But anyway, a lot of times I'd get 
two and, and I'd take the smaller one and skin it out and butcher it all bone in. I didn't bone them, but I, uh, for the most part and stuff it inside the other one and then take a string and tie the belly shut and, and pack them both <laughs> or, or, or I would make a, make the regular pack and fasten one to the other and fit into the, the first pack. And you had that, other one swinging back and forth and you'd go staggering out of the woods but done that many many times <laughs> i have a best guy friend and we hunt with him every year and you know dad packed two deer at a time out until he was like 69 years old and so we feel really you know inadequate and we're like we have to at least pack one deer out at a time until we're 60. Yeah, holy smokes. I can't <laughs> But he, dad did that until he was almost 70. And then now we tell him he could still pack deer out, but we do it for him. And that was really my goal. It was, I want to be able to pack my dad's deer and let him. But if you got two big deer and you couldn't pack them both, it was just too much, then you just relay them out. You'd, you'd take one down and then you'd take the next one down past that and come back and, and just do this until you got to the beach. So huh. you could, you could get two out in a day. Wow. But we use the bones, we use the bones for soup and, you know, the capes can be tanned into leather and sewn into things. And it's just important for us to use all of what we harvest. So yeah. packing it out whole makes the most sense. Yeah. I went and- you can put the heart, the liver, and the stomach back in, you know, the cavity. and Yeah. That serves it, it is important to take the whole deer. Like, I I feel like a criminal if I, you know, if I had the bone one out and put it in the pack and just bring meat home. That's not okay. Look at all that stuff I left behind. Like, all the, the bones we saw up and, and use those along with other meat in making a big soup, you know, and a, it's mm-hmm. so good, you know. Anyway, I think Heather did some Instagram stuff on that, but she uh, did. That that's one of the it, things I was gonna say. It she, puts a it puts a better flavor in the soup, believe it or not. And then you have the marrow, and you have all those knuckles to chew on. I mean, it's. Uh, it's really good if you haven't tried it you're missing out (laughs) yeah well you did the one video heather about the is it deer head soup is is that what it was the deer Deer neck neck. yeah deer neck soup yeah with you know i used to shoot deer in the Uh neck and then i hear oh you wrecked the neck (laughs) you know there goes my neck soup so now i'm gonna you know, try to shoot them a little higher, a great right behind you. Uh, yeah, because we use all of the all of it, and the next soup is so good. And like Dad had described in the video, especially in the fall time, you know, when it's cold and bad weather, and that's like your first deer soup of the year that's fresh. Yeah. It's, I mean, the the marrow is an important part in those leg bones and mm-hmm. stuff, you know, to to get. You know, uh, cook it enough to where they all you eat all the cartilage, everything off of them, and then 
get the marrow out of it, you know. So uh, my mm-hmm. mother just absolutely loved that. She used to take a spoon and take those bones and smack them to get every bit of it out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I mean, the, just hearing you guys talk about this, uh, you know, in the lower 48 or a lot of other places, I was taught, well, you'd never would want to carry all those bones out, you know, on an elk. That's an extra 40 pounds of weight that you're carrying out of there. You guys would look at me and say, Randy, you're an idiot, man. What are, what are you doing leaving those big femur bones in there? And uh, Yeah, I told Dad, I told Randy, I don't think we had to record this. I don't think we were recording this when I told Randy, but when people cut the collars and the bellies off their salmon, it's just such a turnoff to me. I can't, I'm like, no, I can't even, we talked about dating and I was like, if somebody cuts the collars and bellies off their salmon and discards them, it's a deal breaker. You don't, you don't want to hang out with a guy who does that. (laughs) But, and so if our preference is to eat those parts, that's the first thing that you can, somebody else can have the rest of it, but that's what we want. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was watching you and I told Heather this, I said, I was watching your dad clean fish and growing up, uh, walleyes were the, the fish of where I grew up. And a rite of passage was when grandpa would inspect your fish cleaning talents and give, finally give you a thumbs up. In other words, the collars, the cheeks, that everything that was edible, you figured out a way to, to, to save it and eat it. But if you were just one of those guys who wasted the belly, wasted the collar, wasted the cheek, grandpa is like, you're you're not cleaning my fish, son. Uh, so when I watch you clean fish, I told Heather, I said that reminds me so much of my upbringing. It, it was like this rite of passage, and watching you, you're meticulous, and you just take a little bit of the fin off, and then the you, the the way that you go about it, and how you're caring for your knife. It's like I wonder how many thousands and thousands of salmon Mike has has processed in his life. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Tough. And I know some of you are asking me, Randy, why Mountain Tough? Well, I'm training for the biggest hunt of my life in August of 2024. And now that I'm into this, I wish I would have done this when I was 39 instead of waiting until I'm 59. I've already started the on-ramping and I'm progressing through the Bodyweight Foundation program and I'm feeling so much better. I'm feeling better mentally, physically. I'm accountable to myself and I'm pretty excited about it. So if you're interested in making an investment in your health and your hunting, go out to Mountain Tough, use promo code Randy. And when you sign up, you get 14 days to start with. They'll add another 30 days to your free trial when you use promo code Randy. I suspect if you listen to this Hunt Talk Radio podcast, you know that we've got 15 seasons of hunting video content, and we have all of that on one great platform. That platform is Fresh Tracks Plus. At Fresh Tracks Plus, there are no ads. It's the highest quality viewing experience. It's available on mobile and smart TV and Roku and Apple TV and Amazon Fire. Your support of Fresh Tracks Plus helps us make more podcasts, more videos, and more educational content. If you want to try it out, go to freshtracks.tv 
and you can sign up now. Thanks for your support. I don't know. Um, a few, I guess. So. <laughs> <laughs> but so, uh, then we take the heads. We take the heads and mm-hmm. split them, you know, down the nose and smoke them. And, yeah. Or boil them and make fish head soup. But yeah. one of the best things I've tried is the splitting the heads and cold smoking them. So they have to be cooked after, but then baking it and then the cheek, the cold smoked salmon yeah. cheek after it's been baked is really delicious. Well, king salmon, king salmon heads are, and the bigger the better, are just uh, either boiled or uh Smoked and baked, uh, stuff like that. It's just, it's just amazing that, you know, people have no idea what they're missing out on. Yeah. <laughs> we recently hosted a party at my house for, you know, local people. And dad had saved a nice king salmon and he cooked it on the Traeger and he brought it in. And you could tell it was all locals at this dinner because afterward you looked at the salmon and the entire belly <laughs> and collar portion was gone and then the part that everyone else saves <laughs> was left on the pan <laughs> and and everyone's going right for that first belly collar piece and then the next piece after that and they're like are you yeah. sure it, you're like yes so a lot of these things it's that we're part. talking about you know just full <laughs> utilization of everything Mike, that that was just a function of what you had to do. I mean, it, n- there was nothing to be wasted because of no. The, I mean, uh, you didn't waste anything because a lot of it was really good. You, you know, there's you didn't you didn't waste any of it. Some of it was hard to get, like deer and stuff like that. But when growing up, if we we you know when I was just barely a teenager, I guess. Uh, we didn't have refrigeration of any kind, but so we'd go hunting every weekend. And if we didn't get a deer, we would have to eat fish. So, <laughs> but I had five brothers, two sisters, and both parents, and we'd eat a deer a week. So, yeah, yeah, with eight of you, that's that's a it lot. Was, uh, it was important to get one the next weekend. If you didn't, well, then you knew what your diet was going to be. So, <laughs> going to eat more fish. Yeah. <laughs> so you said. To be honest you, with you, when huh? I when I moved away from home, I couldn't look at uh, a can of salmon for many years. Now I I like it, but it was you know we just. I mean, it was necessity, and that was one of the things we had to eat. So yeah. So you said you always wanted to be a fisherman, Mike. And uh, before we got online, you talked about as a kid, you guys didn't have TV. So one of the games you'd play is you'd go build these little boats and you'd walk along the shoreline uh, doing, you know, whatever it is you you would want to do with your little boat that you made and how much you learned from building your own little boats as a kid and, and just floating them along the shoreline and how that kind of progressed and, and taught you so much as you became a fisherman. That just, you know, you, you think about that. Most kids today, it's like, Oh, I got my phone. I got my computer. I got my whatever. They're probably thinking, what do you mean? You, you built your own little boats and you learned something from that. 
Well, some of them were like canoe style. Uh, some of them were like the most modern speedboat. Um, uh, we'd weight them differently. Just you know, uh, I guess it was. Um, it did teach you how boats react in water. Uh, we were having fun. We we're just being kids, but we were actually weighting them different, doing different things to them. And look how look how good my boat rides in the water compared to yours, stuff like this. But uh, I don't know. I guess it's the beginning of uh, understanding the ocean and how boats work. You know. So, yeah. And then, Dad, your first boat that you built was, or the, your first boat was one that you built, right? Um, yeah, we had a family boat, kind of, and it had a a five horse. Um, <laughs> actually, the the name of it was uh, the brand name was Hiawatha. Wow! <laughs> and we used that for a while, but. When I got to be my in, a, in my teens, I ne- really needed a boat to not only to start my fishing career, but just to go out and be able to hunt and and, uh, and of course no money. Yeah. So one of my art, my best pal, he's still alive today, and we're still good friends. Uh, we grew up together. Uh, uh, they had a rowboat, and it had a a five horse motor. Uh, this motor was a Johnson, one of the green ones where you yeah. filled the gas on um, top. Um, yeah. And it, and it would go in a circle for reverse. But yeah. it only it only ran on one cylinder. And we used to run that thing everywhere. No one was smart enough to change the spark plug or do whatever it took to do that. <laughs> if it ran on one, we were happy with that and we could still go. So <laughs> But anyway, his parent was his parents were uh, or his dad was disabled, so he was able to get a social security stipend, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, but anyway, they they had enough money. They always got a little bit of money from social security, and the, they they bought a brand new five and a half Johnson. It was white, and we were playing in that boat and. Uh, we were towing this punt. This punt was the first boat I ever owned. Uh, it, somebody threw it away and it drifted up on the beach and uh, it had a broken side. Uh-huh. And so, I, whoa, look at this boat. It was just like, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So <laughs> I pulled it over the road. I had to have some old guy help me. I, Albert, he gave me a hand and I got it on the, we lived in a float house on the opposite side of the road. And I took that boat and fixed it. I put a patch in there. Uh-huh. I remember I painted it black. But anyway, it leaked a little bit, but it still could go, and I could row this little punt. Well, we were towing this punt around just to have playing boats again, and we put rocks in it so it was a little heavier, and we were towing it with the rowboat with the new five-and-a-half. Uh-huh. And we sunk it. And it sunk <laughs> It was by accident, but anyway, we were in this, uh, in Craig there, there's uh, where Shelter Cove Lodge is at 
kind of channel runs mm-hmm. in there, and the water was I don't know how deep, but uh, but that's where we it tipped over and sunk. So we were trying to pull it up, and we're in this like canoe like rowboat, and we're both pulling trying to get it up so we could get it floating again, and it had rocks in it. Well, the rope back in that day was Manila, you know, and that rope was wasn't strong enough and it busted, and we both went over on the side of the <laughs> the rowboat and we tipped the rowboat over. So here we are in the water, and oh. um, I stood up and the water was like here to me, but Art was swimming for the beach and I was yelling at Art, Art, Art. You know, he finally got his feet under what. We tipped over that motor, and it was brand new, and we were just horrified. So we got it righted, and I don't know. Luckily, we got it started again. And it ran, and we, we never told anybody what happened. Otherwise, we would have been toast. You know? uh, yeah. Getting salt water inside an engine is usually not a good thing for it. No, but we got it running, and we never, ever said a word. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so from that, that, that was the first boat I owned was that little punt. I wasn't using it so much then, but um, anyway. Another funny story is I was like, I don't know, 13, 12, 13. I went to Heidelberg with a friend of mine because he needed the uh, – Bud Thomas, I bought his property. He was one of my mentors. He was a big guy, like 350, 400 pounds and about my height. But he was really nice. And he was, uh... anyway, I went to Heidelberg to, uh, he was going to have a mechanic replace the valve spring in his engine. It was a, a three cylinder Fairbanks Morse diesel. But so in Heidelberg, I had to take my boat with me. So we towed the punt down to Heidelberg, and then Heidelberg, I was rowing, just screwing around while they were working on the ends, and we're there for three or four days, I can't remember. But a boat from Craig was tied up there, Fred Chapley's boat named the Swift, and um, for whatever reason, I decided to see how fast I could go in that skiff, and I was outside the dock, and I was rowing just as hard, and I closed my eyes, and I was just just flying and what i didn't realize that i was turning gradually and i rode smack into the side of that boat just pow you know and i flew up in the bow <laughs> and the owner came out fred he was so pissed at me you know for doing that but <laughs> <sighs> well that 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 was a all learning of skills and experience that helped you when you became a fisherman I mean, you, you probably anyway, you probably weren't realizing that. Anyway, back to the back to the boat story. Uh, so this guy named Henry Nelligan was building these boats just at the beginning of uh, like a little fish egg boom we had here. The the Alaska Department of Fish and Game allowed the wild harvest of kelp, and it started off like twenty five cents a pound. And the next year it was 50, and then it went to a dollar. But anyway, needed this boat. So we took that same rowboat over with the five and a half, and we went around fishing, and, you know, we we're picking up two-by-fours and any decent scrap piece of wood so we could build a replica of the Henry Nelligan skiff. 
And so we gathered the wood. We couldn't afford to buy it, and and uh, we 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 built my first boat. <laughs> and, uh, we could scavenge everything except the plywood. We had to come up with money for the plywood to put on it. But anyway, that's how I got my first first boat. That was your first boat made out of two by fours and plywood. Yeah. Wow. That was beach combed. The the two by fours are beach combed from Fish Egg Island. And then that fishery, the fishery he's referring to is the row on mm-hmm. kelp. Um, it's like a derby, right, Dad? It turned into a derby. After the 50 cent a pound thing, people realized that, oh, we could make some money. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it went on for four or five or six years, and the, the price was really good. And, but so many people started participating in it that, uh, the the uh, the amount of could be harvested was a hundred tons. Mm. So the last fish egg pick they had, the season was twenty minutes. So everybody threw their row on kelp aboard, and twenty minutes the season was over, and that was it, and that was the last season they had. But and wow. I asked years mm-hmm. later the biologist, I said, "Why did you stop that fishery?" He said, "Because it was decimating the herring." Really? Yeah. Wow. But it was it was like a big boom. Everybody was building these flat bottom skiffs. Uh, people would fly from Ketchikan and places, and they were actually picking row on kelp and putting it on their airplane floats, and just it was just crazy, you know. Wow. Huh. So from there, you became a full time fisherman. Was that pretty much your your livelihood? I was fishing before then. Uh, let's see. I started when I was eleven with my stepfather, and then I went when I was uh, thirteen. I went with another guy. Uh, he was maybe three years older than I am, or four than I was at the time, and he was <laughs> running his dad's boat, and he didn't know nothing. I knew more than he did, but it was named the Kingfish, which is still up on dry dock. It's still in existence, but. Uh, we did we did okay we could you know i knew how to catch fish mm-hmm. so I, I i learned how uh, uh trolling hook and line you know mm-hmm. and then when i was 14 i finally uh got hired on the white cap second to go seining uh his name was frank luth but when i was nine and ten i was trying to get frank to hire me to go halibut fishing and they just blew me off but when i was 14 he hired me to go seining mm-hmm. and he was virtually deaf he had uh, hearing aids he had one he stick in your ear and you had the thing in your with the wire going up you know into your part yeah he was always <laughs> squealing and when he'd start the engine in the morning, he couldn't hear, you know, so he'd grind <laughs> on it and watch the tachometer. And then when the tachometer went flying up, he always, I thought the engine would probably be turning 5,000. Oh, it's running. You know, okay. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> uh, so we went to Waterfall and uh, we had to sign in with the company, you know, uh, mm-hmm all your information and uh he said 
tell him you're 16. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to lie about my age, but anyway. I made $1,200 that, that year uh, sailing on his boat. That was probably a big, big uh, amount of money for a young guy at that time. Yeah, it, it was, but... Um, I don't even know if I should tell this, but anyway, my. <laughs> Go ahead and I tell it, get, Mike. We'll edit it out if it's too bad. <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't get the money at the end of the season, so uh, they did the bookwork, and then the you know, at the end of the season, so uh, my mother and father took the little trolling boat and me aboard and went to waterfall to to get my money. It's an hour. You know where waterfall yeah. is, but anyway. <laughs> but at the company store there, they were having a year-end sale. Well, you know, they're getting rid of, you could buy stuff pretty cheap. So $600 of my money went to buy a whole bunch of stock uh, without my permission. And uh, then we had grow all, all kinds of stuff, but. So I wound up with six hundred dollars for the end of my fishing season. <laughs> I didn't think I didn't appreciate it at all, you know. But there wasn't anything I could do about it. So yeah. Anyway, so I made six hundred dollars. So that, but I, but I was a big strong kid, and um, you know, boat wise. Um, what I mean by boat-wise is you see crewmen come from everywhere in the USA, and they're not boat-wise. You really have to watch them. You have to teach them everything. But somebody that's homegrown and grew up from just a little kid around boats and stuff, mm-hmm. they know how everything works. You know, I mean, it's it's what you call boat-wise. You know, uh, even our little dogs, uh they grew up since little puppies, and they, they know all the moves on the boat. They, you tell them, go get in the boat, and they'll go fly, jump in, all of them. Uh, we have five dogs. I mean, they all know the drill, you know. I mean, they're – but they they learn it from just being really little and – but anyway. They know when you're shooting, when you're shooting to go out of the way, go, don't oh, really? move. Yeah, except, except our big – You're shooting off the boat – Except our big lab, he's uh, out of control. But anyway, uh, being boat-wise and uh, grew up here, uh, it was really hard to get on a sane boat. Uh, now they just have to shop everywhere to try to get crewmen. Yeah. Uh, but back then, all, all the boats were like family-owned and stuff. If you didn't know somebody or have a good friend or, or be a relative, you couldn't get on a good boat. So... Anyway, I always had it in there. So, but I never could make enough money sailing. I always wanted to own my own boat. Yeah. Know? So it took quite a few years. It wasn't until 1970 uh, I finally was able to buy a boat. Okay. And with that, then you just did trolling? Yeah. I trolled for, I'm still trolling today. Yeah. So I've been fishing for like 62 or three years now. 
<laughs> Dad gave gave us his boat, a Zodiac, eight foot, is eight feet, right? When I was in first grade, that was my first boat, and he put a Johnson four horse on it, and I didn't realize at the time how much I was learning, but you yeah. learn, you know, all kinds of stuff when you're operating a boat. And my friend, my best friend was real tiny and I'd put her in the bow because, you know, four horse doesn't go very fast, but so the bow wouldn't tip up like this when I'm back there with yeah. the engine and she'd weigh down the bow and we'd cruise around. But, um, I didn't tell dad this at the time, but we operated a little water taxi. And when the saners would come in, they'd tie up out in the bay all together. And then they'd want to ride to the dock to go to town or whatever. And then they'd have to get back to their boat. So they'd pay us a dollar and go <laughs> pick them up and take them to North Cove and back. And now I look, I look at my niece, she's nine and she seems like tiny. You know, I'm like, I can't believe we did that. We were six and seven or however. <laughs> old we were <laughs> down at the dock and we had those orange life yeah. jackets and put peace signs all over them and sharpie in our names <laughs> and that was my first business oh, dad so funny. <laughs> but i feel like there was a lot of eyes on us and the house is right above the dock so you can kind of see what we yeah. were up to so, so mike but, with with fishing kind of being the core of your your activity was it enough to to get you through or do, is that where you started like look i i gotta learn i gotta be a better hunter i gotta be a trapper i gotta hunt seals i gotta this i gotta that was that part of the necessity of just how how adaptable and how skilled you needed to be to make a living um uh, it was when i was a teenager and homeless particularly uh when i got my boat i was able to uh go trap wolves trap mink trap otter in the winter uh, uh it was uh, it was the only way you could ever make any kind of money so okay and then uh out of that skiff during the you were you only saying a couple months out of the year but on the either end of that you could uh we could sport fish for king salmon commercially like you could use three poles, and that's what I did, you know. And uh, you could fish longline halibut with uh, by hand, and I did all that too. Uh, uh, yeah, just uh, constant, you know. So there was still a bounty on wolf at that time, you know, and it was only fifty dollars, but you could buy, you know, uh, I think a barrel of gas was twenty six dollars. Oh wow! Uh, of of mixed gas, so you. So you could go a long ways with a, a 50 gallon barrel of gas. Yeah. But in the meantime, you were, you're getting deer, uh, seal there, there wasn't a restriction on seal and you could, uh, hunt seal and sell the hides. Uh, but all that, uh, was a big part of how I survived up until I, I did get my own, uh, commercial boat. Yeah. I so mean, that's that's what you did yeah so you laying that as kind of the foundation of how long you have been at this i want to go back to a comment that heather made uh on this podcast and on the previous one about how sometimes and i'm going to get to the sea otter thing because i had no idea that sea otter 
we're impacting some of your traditional fisheries and shellfish, I think shell fisheries for the most part. Uh, have you seen big changes like that? You know, I'm sure logging brought some big changes. We got the Marine Mammal Protection Act where all these other things that uh, had to have impacted what you guys have been able to do and, and uh, where your food and, and other livelihood has come from. Well, Dad remembers. Dad, can you tell him about the first sea otter that you saw after they were reintroduced to this area? In the late 60s, they were uh, testing these nuclear bombs up in the Lucians. And Amchitka was uh, one of the strongholds of otter, but that's where they drilled down into the island, the core of the island itself, to uh, set off... Uh, nuclear tests, you know, wow. and they didn't know what would happen, really. Uh, so they decided to take some of those sea otter and, and transplant them because they didn't know if it would kill them all or what would happen. So they brought them to southeast and turned them loose. And outside Craig here was uh, one of the places that they released them. So I was cruising by Point Amagura. Maybe you remember that it's on San Fernando. But anyway, uh, I saw this sea otter, and I'd never seen one before. Um, knowing what I do now, I wish I would have went and harvested it, you know, although it was illegal at that time. But uh, I was showing Heather a picture of a bucket of clams that I uh dug in 2010 and that's the last bucket of clams that i'd been able to get uh, uh from say like 1970 to till now uh, all of our intertidal shellfish are gone really? the urchins the abalone uh the clams, all the crab that are down to 40 fathoms, not all of them, but, you know, a good portion of those crabs that they could reach. They can dive to 40 pretty comfortable, but 50 is kind of a borderline thing. Okay. Uh, all the octopus that that were denning in the intertidal areas we used to go get, we don't see any of that anymore. That's all gone. And uh, so... Were sea otter traditionally, or were they historically endemic and native to southeast Alaska? Yes, they were. But uh, I think back in the old days, they were hunted enough for, you oh. see, all this big food source created a big boom in in the otter. There was so much food that they just really mm -hmm. blossomed. Yeah. But back in the day, before even the Russians came here, there was uh, there was otter, but I believe that it had a chance to balance somewhat. And not only that, the natives were able to harvest enough to keep them away from, you know, some of the more uh, productive clam areas and stuff like that. Because mm -hmm. I, I've never heard that they were uh, a problem. Okay. Because you guys so, have, you have. I don't a, think it'll ever even out without 
some intervention, you know, uh, we can't harvest enough to even maintain a level of population. They're still growing. So, yeah, well, yeah, they're, they're, there's an amazing numbers of them. I mean, last year I was on QU Island over on the southeast side. What is it? I think Three Mile Bay and Protection Bay. And yeah. we'd see rafts of over 100 sea otters. Ah, I'm like, this, this can't be. This is the ripple effect. Uh, it's just like going like this, uh, and that's part of what you're seeing there. There are some places in southeast that don't have a lot of them, but they haven't got that ripple yet. Okay. Uh, they will. So they keep moving as the food supply uh, dwindles behind them, but they, there's enough left behind to keep that intertidal seafood population from re, from uh, uh, from growing back because yeah. it's cold water and it takes years to grow an abalone this big you know yeah so even if there's a few small ones they'll come along and they'll eat all those uh, the huh. urchins we so we found some that were like medium-sized a couple of years ago and then went back last year and there wasn't any an otter came by and got them all so hmm so uh, you it, see a lot of little tiny ones, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, uh, in a couple little places that we looked, but I don't know if any of them will survive to uh, be big enough for something that I want to eat, you know? Yeah. So. They're so heavily protected and, you know, in order to recoup the cost that you're putting into you know, going out hunting gas, your ammo, your time, you don't, you'll never recoup the cost of your time, but going out hunting, then you come back. So you're, you're required to um, significantly alter the pelt in order to sell a sea otter product. So you can't sell a whole pelt to somebody who is, does not, qualify to obtain a whole pelt under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which as it currently stands, you must be at least one quarter blood quantum of coastal Alaska native trust. So go out and you hunt and bring them back, skin them, flesh them, salt them, get them tanned. And if you get them professionally tanned, you know, oh, yeah. shipping cost both ways. I calculated the cost, and if you send over over 30, you get a little bit of a price break per pelt. It's about 10, maybe 8 or 10 bucks a pelt less. It's about, um, it costs about $120 a hide um, to tan and then ship, but that doesn't include, right. you know, your time and effort. Yeah, uh- to prepare them and then you um need to cut them into something and sew them or alter them to a point where they can be sold so it really is a big time commitment but i always say we're fighting the good fight because traditional food security is really important to us and we go out there in the winter as much as we can every weekend and we hunt sea otter and i'm out there with the headlamp in the dark skinning and <laughs> rushing on the weekends and hmm. 
and that's what we do all winter from when you're done with deer hunting all the way till the seal harvest in march so if my time is dedicated to preparing and sowing sea otter pelts and harvesting you said there heather if i called you up and said heather i know you got this operation where you have sea otters where you're out harvesting and tanning i could not just buy a tanned pelt from you that i wanted yeah it's it's a federal offense for me to sell one for you to buy one but what's what's even more what makes an even more of an impact on us as as indigenous people is that it's actually federally illegal for me to teach my niece how to sew because she doesn't meet those blood quantum requirements or any anybody who doesn't fall above that 25% blood quantum requirement, which is really a colonial yeah, that's, you mean, know, idea of eliminating somebody's cultural rights yeah. and... And there's no other human who has to provide a proof of what percentage of what you are to practice your culture, whether you're, you know, where, whatever your background is, the only other beings that, you know, I don't know if I had shared this in the past, but the only other beings that measure blood quantum to I guess I'm trying to find the words is like not to determine your value, but to to determine what you are, you know, are horses and, and dogs, you know, like purebred horses and purebred dogs. I mean, that's, I had no idea that was the case. That, that, That seems so insane. So, so illogical, bigoted you know it seems like a carryover from a time when you're really heavily protected and you know that that law is 50 something years old but i don't teach my niece that you know my niece and nephew they see me out there and they help me like you know take care of the hides and i can't i just can't teach them that i cannot teach them they're not enough of something to do what's their Aboriginal yeah. right, as my dad would say, you know, this is who they are and they, they are Alaska native and they should be yeah. proud of that just like we are. And, and I don't believe in that. And if they want to learn, it's also a part of my culture and a part of our culture, val- cultural values to be generous. And that, that doesn't mean generous necessarily with money or food which it can fall into that category but it's it's being generous with your knowledge and if somebody wants to learn we will generously teach and that's what my dad has done with me and that's my responsibility to learn and then also share that with other people so our culture can continue to thrive and that really that law and the Marine Mammal Protection Act really limits our ability to do that surrounding our traditional materials and 
regalia and the things that we know and want to teach and pass down. Yeah. Well, that, that, but then also your food source. I mean, yeah. So there, there are not enough hunters and sowers out there to harvest enough sea otter to even make a slight impact on the population to a point where the foods can come back. <laughs> and if you think about it, you know, the money you spend up front to to sew for, or like to sew and then resell it, it it's pretty costly. And at the the price of living here and, and groceries and things like that, I don't think a lot of people will, you know, be able to financially support that either. This is. But you, you are correct. You cannot buy just a plain tanned hide. It has to be significantly altered. And uh, one of the problems we have had in the past is each enforcement officer takes a significantly altered part of it and uh, interprets it to his own. Yeah, uh, how how they see it, and it, it never was really a standard. It, it's somewhat relaxed now a little bit, but uh, it uh, it it is a problem. So, yeah, I, I just don't know how when when you talk about this blood quantum twenty five percent, it's you know just in a in societies and cultures as we interact and you know there's they're it seems insane that if somebody is 25%, but they maybe end up with a spouse who isn't, and somehow they get below that 25%, now they are not allowed to teach their kids this very important no. culture, cultural tradition. Am I understanding They can't take it? steel. They can't take otter uh, or any of the marine mammals. So my niece, my niece and nephew could not make seal oil with us. They couldn't handle the the meat, the fat, the pelt. Um, that's our, that's a important harvest. As we mentioned last time we spoke and now, you know, today we look forward to that seal harvest every year, March. It's the first harvest and you know, it's gonna kick off your traditional food season. And it's really an exciting time because we all anticipate that. Mm -hmm. The herring spawn yeah. and uh you know the little kids which it's really important for kids you know me growing up and the next generation and all of us to have those strong roots strong cultural roots and know who they are and where they came from because you know they go out in the world and they need to have those strong roots with all the storms going on yeah. and be able to be grounded in their culture and that kills me because my niece wants to go she wanted to go on a seal hunt we took her you know she didn't touch it or anything but she went and she wanted to go she was eight years old and she should go yeah. and then she should learn to cut the cut the fat and how to render it and scoop it just like everything that my dad was taught from his grandma and auntie and I was taught by him and that's that's what's really sad about it is the limitations surrounding our our culture too. Yeah, that's it. The more go ahead. One Mike. of the more frightening things is that the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service 
does a sea otter count. Mm-hmm. And three years ago, they said there was 25,000. I, uh, I, um, not in total agreement with their count, but, uh, the last, the latest count, they said there was like 22,500. But the frightening part was that they said the carrying capacity was 48,000. And we don't have any intertidal shellfish now. And I, and I, I dispute what their theory is because uh, we've lived here for thousands of years and we're part of this ecosystem. Yeah. And, and we're not figured into this calculation at all. I mean, I would like to take that biologist out and show him uh, what used to be here and what is here now. And you're telling me the carrying capacity, we're not even halfway there? No, you're not looking at all facets of uh, what's going on here. So I think that can be common too with when we talk about land management. Right. You know, I, I I say land, I say relationship because we're a part of the land just as much as it's a part of us. But looking at it from outside mm-hmm. in like we own the land and we're going to manage it from an outsider's perspective, but we are a part of a part of this ecosystem, just like dad said. And um, we have been for over 10,000 years. So what is currently happening, obviously it's just not working. Yeah. I mean, how can it work when you start establishing these types of arbitrary rules? of what you can do and how you got to alter this and making it virtually unfeasible financially to really make a dent in the population. Add on then the, oh, through enough generations, pretty soon we're just going to exclude any of your your descendants from having the blood quantum to qualify to do any of it. And complete disregard for what that means to your traditional food sources. It's like, well, uh, you don't need any intertidal shellfish. You, you go go buy some groceries. I mean, that, not not that anyone has said that to you, but that's the implied message, right? Mike, Heather, yeah, you know, we, we, we don't care that this is what you guys have lived on for thousands of years. That's just not the way we do it today. That, that oh, kind of forces people forces people into a situation where they have to rely on, you know, mass-produced commercial foods, which is not what we want to do here. It's not what we can do here either yeah. because, you know, we have one grocery store. You saw a block of cheese is $50, yeah. and we try to visit the store as little as possible. And No, yeah. I'm an old-school guy. Um I could, with just a few staples, I could live out of my freezers and what I have put away for months. Yeah. You know, would never have to go to the store. So, yeah. That's, but, but I'm old school and I, you know, food is always something I do, you know. So, yeah. You're, <laughs> I have lots of food. <laughs> <laughs> but you think about it, Mike. One, you've had to do it that way. Two, you, you've become, uh, one of the 
knowledge keepers about doing it. And from everything I see and the way you talk about it, and I see your smiles on video, and it's something that is so much a part of you that food, you not being out getting your food wouldn't be Mike. They'd be asking you to be someone else. No, I look forward to doing it. I mean, that's what we do. I mean, it's better food than anything you can buy. Yeah. And when we hunt otter, we do hunt quite ethically. We never, we never shoot doubles. Uh, doubles by meaning any females with pups, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, and they're not that easy to get either. It's not like you could go up and dip nut them up. So they, <laughs> they get smart and everything else. But. Yeah, <laughs> they're hard. They're they're hard to hunt. Yeah. It, it took me years to not. You know, come back and go, hey, I'm a bad shot. But now this year, my best guy friend was on the boat with us. You know, he can't, he can be on the boat, but he can't do anything. He's mm-hmm. not, not indigenous, but <laughs> we got to the dock, you know, we've been going every weekend and he goes, geez, I'm going to have to get myself some pom-poms because he just kind of stands on the boat and he's like, He's like, good job, good job. <laughs> He's the cheerleader. <laughs> so this applies to sea otters, to seals. What else? Marine, marine mammals. Any, any marine mammals. Sea lions. We can take sea lions. I haven't eaten one for quite a few years, but sea lion meat is different than seal. It, it's more like colored like beef where seal mm. is really dark. Okay. But they're okay, but they're hard to get uh, mainly because uh, they sink so fast. Okay. um, Also, Randy, I wanted to thank you. Dad, you don't, Dad didn't listen to my podcast. I didn't send Dad my podcast. So, um, Randy, Randy helped give me the confidence to, you know, share on social media about our harvest of the otter and more about sewing and the processing and so um this weekend is a long weekend and so i'm gonna thaw i have 37 pelts in the fur freezer which have overflowed into my food freezer which has now overflowed into my kitchen <laughs> freezer and i took out the ice tray which is now on the counter and it, there's pelts in there so i'm gonna thaw them and i was gonna do uh like a how-to on that and just kind of walk people through the process because I feel like if I could empower one more hunter to feel like they know what you know to to make it a little bit easier to flesh or process or do whatever they can then that's what I want to do so thanks for your help with that and it's always like I'm out there I'm going what am I doing I am I cannot believe I do it's fascinating to watch, Heather, and I would bet the people listening to this podcast, and I'll, there will be tens of thousands of people who listen to this podcast, right now they're trying to process what the two of you have just talked about. How I, I know in today's world we, we like to cast blame and categorize things, but if ever there's institutional inertia that is bigoted towards the culture and the foods and the sustainability of a group of people, this example of how the Marine Mammal Protection Act is 
you guys are paying the price for it. You're, the brunt of it is landing on your doorstep and the wor- the country is saying, well, you guys deal with it. And I bet you the odd... And you're, you're terrible people for hunting yeah. cute little sea otters. But I think that's so important. That's so important to point out. And also, I, I just hope, you know, that people... It's not going to stop us, but people can get to a place and and be open to the point where you cannot view anything that we do, whether it's our traditional foods, whether it's fermenting fish eggs in a jar for a week, or you know fermenting and making Indian cheese from you know coho eggs to harvesting sea otter and and making our handicraft items with those. Um, you cannot view that through any other lens except Yours. for yeah. ours with our cultural values and, and how we, those were passed down for since millennia, you know, and that's what's happening when those types of comments are being made. Yeah. Well, judgments are being made. It's, it's being viewed through a different, you know, a, a different lens. Yeah. And I, it just can't no, be. and I think, a lot of us are seeing how this society we live in wants everyone to view the world through whatever lens somebody chooses. And your lens of how your lives, your cultures, your food, everything is connected to these landscapes, these waters. No one else has any right to tell you how you should be able to do that. And I think you, I mean, you know, when you take a life, when you shoot something mm-hmm. like that's serious, it's yeah. not, you know, we don't, like dad said, we're ethical hunters. We don't hunt moms with pups and we shoot them in the head. You know, they die instantly. If you do happen to wound one, it's not, it's not good. We don't like yeah. that. So we don't try to do it. And that's with anything we hunt, whether it's a, deer or whatever we're not trying to trophy hunt and save the skull you know we're gonna shoot something where it can not suffer when it goes and as i went on a bear hunt and they told me to buy a shoot it in the like i don't know for the shoulder or whatever and i said okay i will you know because they kept telling me you got to save the skull that's the trophy and i'm like all right i'll sure i knew I knew I wasn't going to do that. I knew I was going to shoot it in the head. So I pretended that I was going to follow their directions and I got on the rest and we, and, uh, so they all thought, okay, she's, it's going to turn broadside, whatever. And I said, okay, now, now I shot it right. I aim right for below the ear, which is what my dad, behind the ear, which is what my dad taught me. Well, I shot it in the ear. It dropped and it died instantly yeah. and they they thought it was a miracle because they'd never seen a bear die instantly <laughs> when it was shot behind the shoulder they were like it just went it's uh, down and i was like yeah. Yeah. without a wasted part anywhere yeah oh, that's cool and it was yeah it was good yeah um, but. well I, I the reason i touch on these things is the the i i put so much value in 
the knowledge that all of you have. Like when I go to Alaska and I see what all of you are doing and I see how locals are living off the land, I feel so skill impaired. I, I feel that I'm such a novice and I, I want those things not just to continue, but I want the world to have an understanding and appreciation for them. And I know this podcast is one little part of the world, very little part of the world. But these type of things where we have institutional, I don't care if you want to call it laws, if you want to call it belief systems, we, we have a, a collective of things that impose other societal and cultural beliefs on different groups. And this is a perfect example of that. I mean, it's, I'm sure there are people listening who are like, how the hell can this be? What can I do to this? This is stupid. Let's change this. And, uh, I, I hope that people hear this story and say, you know what, Mike and Heather should be able to go and do whatever is their cultural food activities without the interference of quote unquote, Marine Mammal Protection Act or whatever else it might be. Like I know recently, Mike, wasn't there a petition to get the Prince of Wales wolf classified as a separate wolf subspecies or something and get it listed on the Endangered Species Act? Did I? Uh, We just went through our ESA number three. Okay. And uh, it was decided that uh, they're not endangered, but... They're looking at the biodiversity, and uh, uh, I don't know. That's a couple of years away before they, anything's determined. Meanwhile, the department is um, focused on being very conservative with wolf harvest, and uh, in in my uh, I went to the meeting. Uh, I'm a, I'm good at catching wolves. I've been dealing with them ever since I was a young kid. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I know how to catch them. I I understand them. I've been studying them all my life. Yeah. And my argument was the method methodology they were using to calculate the number of wolves was off. I said you're fifty percent off. Yeah, they were. But in any case. Uh, they're managing the wolves very conservatively uh, uh, based on some biodiversity DNA threat. Uh, I don't know if I said that right, but mm-hmm. so they're willing to sacrifice the deer, which we don't have the deer we used to. Yep. Uh, so, anyways, uh, we'll see what happens down the road, I guess. We did get our deer, uh, we got a couple and for Heather and like myself, one, two is enough. I, I might get another one just for, you know, different purposes. But we try to get our deer before the end of October because they're they're nice and uh, prime. Uh, when it becomes a rut in November and later, I don't want them. I mean, they they don't taste as good. They're tough and they're you know they might be easier to get, but they're they're not the same quality. So yeah. Yeah. We're spoiled. Uh, uh, we're used to getting our own food, and it's fresh. Uh, we don't freeze, but very little fish uh, because 
no one wants to eat it. We, if we want fish, we go and go get a fresh one. <laughs> Just a, a couple of days ago, I went and got fresh fish, uh, which we're going to have tonight. Uh, but we are spoiled. I mean, we, we have uh, access to really good, fresh, uh, and that's what we do. Uh, wow. uh, one thing. We- Dad's first year. Your first year he gave to an elder, which dad does not claim his elder status yet. And he still provides for <laughs> other elders instead of letting us provide for him. So his first year he sent to my uncle who can't hunt anymore. And then the deer he mentioned for other purposes is we want to learn, uh, me and my niece and nephew want to learn how to make jerky um, the traditional way that dad knows how, which is not grinding it up and putting it in the shooter. It's like cutting the pieces and, you know, putting them on the cotton string and yeah. smoking them in the smokehouse. Yeah. So so uh, when do you become an elder, Mike? What, 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 uh, when do you graduate <laughs> to that to that level? I guess when you can't step aboard the boat anymore. <laughs> so I, guess, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Dad, whenever we harvest, which is, you know, I think we talked about this before, but like you always share, you know, and and with people who can't get any or or they don't have access or for whatever reason, they don't have any of those types of foods or need help getting them. So (laughs) dad harvests a lot, but he gives away 80% and, and we keep 20 I'd say it's important to it's a, it's it's the way we grew up. You know, it's in our in our culture to do that. Um, yeah. You know, I send a box of seal to my friend in Cake. He can't hunt anymore, and he said, oh, "Boy, I'd like to have seal." Okay, I'll get you one. You know, so, mm-hmm. I sent my one of my best friends, George. Calls him Uncle George. You know, a, a really nice deer. I mean, prime, fat, perfect. You know, I mean. Uh, couldn't be better. Uh, but I do that with fish, and uh, I'm still capable of doing all this stuff yet at a slower pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, I run out of gas real we easy call, now. We call him that. <laughs> we say, "Are you?" We call up Uncle George and say, "Are you hungry?" And he goes, "Yes, I am." <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know what. Gonna be coming his way, but he knows yeah. something, you know, that we've harvested. But uh, Dad, uh, the way that you know, Dad got his deer call, and you could tell the story. But um, elders have a certain way of letting you know when they're hungry okay. for certain uh-huh. foods, and and that's just uh, a communication between them and the community or is this like a family thing or no. like uncle George? You know, I, he'll tell you the deer call story. Okay. You know, I think. Well, when I was younger, there was probably less deer times and uh, we were never good at calling them, you know, mm-hmm. you know, if we did call one, it was usually a doe, but we didn't care if we could get it, we would. But, so I was out in a boat and I was maybe 16 years old or something. And 
uh, I got this deer. I can't remember how I got it, but anyway, I had this. Uh, it was a doe. I had it in a skiff and cleaned it. Got it, and, I'm, and I'd been told by anyway this older guy, old old man. He wasn't that old at that time, but uh, he was living on his boat. Is uh, Ralph James, and I heard that he had good deer calls. So. But he was very gruff, and uh, in the weather, it was okay to even say hi. <laughs> <laughs> I pulled alongside his boat. Uh, the name of it was the Gypsy, and he lived on there with his wife. And uh, knocked on the boat, and, and uh, he's always gruff, you know. He really wasn't. He was really kind-hearted. But door came open, looking at. And I said, oh, I got this deer. I said, uh, do you want to make a trade? I need a deer call. And I looked at it and he said, get aboard. <laughs> and took me down to Folksol, which is down below. And uh, he said, Lydia, get the deer called. And he had a jar that he kept them in and he got one out and he said, blow it. And I blew it and he said, he says, where he learned to blow a deer call like that? He said, like this. He made me take lessons until uh, till he thought I had it sort of right. Mm-hmm. And then put the deer aboard and he was happy. Um, that became a, a real friendship. You know, he was my adopted grandpa. Uh, oh, wow. And he had tremendous knowledge. If I needed to know anything, you just ask Grandpa Ralph, and he could he could tell you anything, you know. And uh, I, you know, I like to supply food for elders, friends, and stuff, and always kept him supplied with anything he wanted. But he'd say, "Grandson," he says, "How's your deer call?" And uh, that was the signal to go. He wanted deer meat, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or um, you know, I'm, I'm hungry for clams, or you know, whatever, whatever he wanted, or anything he wanted. All he had to do was order it. It was pretty good for him too. <laughs> the, the knowledge that he had, he lived to be over a hundred, you know. So, oh wow. I wasn't listening to him or paying good attention one time, and he he pointed his finger at me and said, you listen to me. He said, I'm not 84 years old for nothing. (laughs) 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 Oh, that's cool. The the gumboot story. Do do you still use those, those types of calls, Mike? Absolutely, and I still have that deer call. Oh, wow. I don't use it much Dad, anymore, but I still have it. But one time where... Dad doesn't realize... Dad, you don't realize now? Like, Dad is that mm-hmm. person. You know, he knows so much. Yeah. And my friend says, I really want one of your dad's deer calls, you know, because Dad keeps them in a jar, <laughs> and I keep mine in a jar. And he borrowed one of mine. There's all the dogs. 
Oh my gosh. Well, it, look, uh, I, I, but, don't worry about that, Heather. Our audience loves dogs. So if you got <laughs> if you got the UPS man showing up and your dogs are giving him a hard time, <laughs> you fit right in with our audience. So. We don't have UPS. It arrives on a float plane. <laughs> we have to go pick it up. That's true. I forgot about that. But we are the UPS. Yeah. Um, but Dad has a gumboot story too. Oh yeah, what what's a gumboot? A gumboot is um one of these little black um uh, what do they call them? Chittendons or what are what's the proper name, Heather? Is it a titan or a chitin? Anyway, they're a a chitin. They're a little shelf. A mollusk. Shellfish, okay. like a snail, kind of, and they got shells on their back that are. I think there's eight. Um, Anyway, so I got some of those, and the old man was cutting them with a knife like that, and he was peeling them, and they were eating them raw. You, normally, you cook them, but you do um, you eat them raw also. Uh, the um, the inner part that fastens to the rock, there's a, you can cut it out, and it's real tender, and actually the old ladies used to take the whole uh, eat all the insides too i eat the orange part and uh, i've tried the the green part too it's not too bad but <laughs> all the old ladies used to always all eat the whole thing but the outside part of it is real hard i mean they they can harden up and uh but anyway he was cutting them and peeling them and he was peeling them against the uh against the layers of shells and I asked him, you know, we were sitting there eating, and I said, aren't you doing that backwards? And he had his glasses like this, and he looked at me, and he said, I'm an expert gumboots eater. And that was the end of that conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So something tells me, Mike, you're keeping notes of those kind of responses so that when somebody comes and questions you someday, Mike, are you doing that backwards? You'll tilt your glasses down and say, look, I'm the expert. No. I'm not 84 for a reason. <laughs> but anyway, we'd sit, you know, what I really miss is like getting a bucket of clams. I mean, we sat in the skiff one day and we're eating clams, you know, uh, eating them raw. You know, I mean, that's, they're, they're absolutely delicious, a good butter clam, you know. But I really miss doing that. We, we just don't get them anymore. And that's because of the predation by the sea otter. Yeah, it's unbelievable what they can do. I mean, they—they—they've uh, just. There, I can't find any in the places that I used to go. There just isn't any. Yeah, but we always dug our clams in the most uh, places where the shells are white. You know, uh, not somewhere in the mud where they're black and stuff, but. Uh, the native indigenous people here for hundreds, if not thousands of years, practice mariculture. They actually made clam gardens on the beach. You can you can see them today where they're absolute. I mean, it took tremendous amount of work, but they made gardens for clams. Really? Wow. So those are still in existence today. And I was looking at one a couple of weeks ago, and the the axle otter were still digging here and there uh, because they can see the neck sticking up when the tide's in. Yeah. 
Yeah, they don't just start digging, hoping to find a clam. They're cruising around uh, looking for that little neck, and when they spot one, they'll dig that clam. So hmm. when I go digging, usually we used to see them squirting. You know, yeah. it's easy to see a hundred of them squirting at a time. Yeah. And we don't see that anymore. I took Heather to one of the best beaches in Portilla Channel, and there was not one, not one clam squirt. You know? Wow. And we dug around there and found a couple yeah. little ones this big, but there was pock marks here and there where the otter could find those little necks uh, on the re- what was remaining, you know. So, huh. Yeah, they're incredibly strong and incredibly resilient, yeah. too. So they're cute and cuddly, really, you know, and we like them too. Yeah. But um, uh, trust me, they are a real predator. Yeah. Well, I I think about the indigenous knowledge that it took for cultures to survive on landscapes for ten thousand or more years, and I think about the amount of knowledge that maybe we're ignoring or not paying attention to that we could learn and benefit from. And hearing you talk about this stuff just causes me to to feel even stronger that how much of this indigenous knowledge are we just not paying attention to? Because, you know, from you talk about this outside looking in, on the outside, we think we know everything, right? We've, we've got all the work. We we've solved all the problems of the world. When really, okay, I'll, I'll give you some insight in that mentality. Um, All these salmon streams here were owned by somebody back in the day. And, and many of them, you can see the rock fish traps that have mm-hmm. been there for centuries. I've seen them. But, okay, one of, one of the people I know, I won't mention any names, but uh, said that we had a good salmon run and said that the salmon were overescaped, you know, like it was detrimental. And back in the day, there was no commercial fishery. And the salmon runs came in without a commercial fishery. Can you imagine how much salmon there was going into the streams? Yeah. And I said, in today's mentality, you would say they're overescaped, but they always had salmon, you know. So that mentality doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. But you got to remember that the indigenous people that lived here managed the resources for thousands of years until somebody else came along and had a better idea. And now yeah. look where we're at. You know? Yeah. So. No, and that that's a part of that that uh, I want people to think about, Mike, is – do we really our our confidence that we've always got a, a better idea, right? Well, the, old, the old timers always would say, even though you can get a huge amount of something, only take what you need, and there'll always be someone you go back. And some of that is abused by indigenous people today that don't understand. Uh, how it all works but that was what you always been taught only take what you need and there'll always be someone that's what they always said yeah so even though you're capable of doing much more so 
No, it's that's same with with regulations. Just because you can get X amount of deer doesn't mean you get that many deer. You don't need that many. Um, you know, people say, "Oh, limits!" Like, "Oh, got limits!" Like, it's a good thing, bragging thing. I don't know what that is, but only taking what you need need might mean one or one and share one with someone who can't hunt or, you know, whatever that means. But I don't necessarily think science and indigenous knowledge should be viewed as a competing things, but working together could really make a positive change. And we had the opportunity to meet at my dinner party (laughs) with a, a sea otter biologist who, you know, there's the science and then here I am a skin sewer and my dad's there and there's traditional knowledge. Everyone's in the room and there are things that we taught him that he didn't know. And he's like a doctor mm-hmm. in sea otter. <laughs> and, and then we learned things too that we didn't know, you know, and he was learning about the hair types and how some are curly some are straight, some have guard hair, and some don't. And they're just, every single one has a different hair texture. And he's like, I didn't know that. I thought he was kidding. <laughs> and then we pulled out my belt and he was looking at him. And here we're nerding out on sea otter info till like midnight. You know? And I'm obsessed with sea otter and hunting and sewing. And I love to do what I do. So his friend's like, come on, let's go. And he's like, I could, I could talk about this stuff all night. And it was really... It was nice. And now we have a a connection there that we can share. You know, he he would like to know more about just things that aren't required to be reported through the tagging process and things like that. And, and if, you know, if one has a disease or, you know, we've had one have something going on with its arm and then, you know, that's all maybe something we can learn yeah. too. So, well, the bottom line oh, is, dad. if you don't need it, leave it alone. You know? Yeah. So, no. But I think... in a meeting, the same biologist was uh, present, and uh, I was saying, uh, "Yeah, we see you know, the otter eat all these nice things, but when they can't get that, they start eating other things." Uh, uh, they're eating mostly deep water clams and things like that now. Uh, abalone, they're still finding a few. Heather took a picture of a otter scat that had bright iridescent uh, abalone shell in it. Uh, we see them eating these little starfish. The starfish got wiped out a few years ago by a virus, but mm-hmm. some of the real hard smaller ones that made a comeback yeah and those otter are eating those starfish and you know i don't know what kind of food value is but the other thing i see them eating is um uh this coral that grows i don't know how shallow it comes up but anyway it must be 40 fathoms or so but anyway we catch them in deeper water than that generally sometimes they break off and we bring up a branch of this uh it's kind of a orange branch coral i don't know what mm-hmm. it's called but I've seen him holding bundles of that and eating coral. Really? So, 
the nutritional anyway, he was writing this stuff down the stuff that they don't know you yeah. know the, I, I never see boots on the ground with those guys here studying the otter but maybe they do somewhere else or yeah. Or maybe in the Seattle Aquarium. I don't know. <laughs> I think working, yeah, working together is, is important. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we do is uh, Heather knows how uh, I got to teach Heather how to uh, use uh, what we call nuch. It's uh, the traditional halibut hooks. Yeah, that's fascinating, Mike. I, I've and, uh, seen that on her on her Instagram page, and I'll be honest: as someone who's fished all my life, I'm like, "This is this this is like hocus pocus. This this isn't for real." But it's fascinating to see how it works. It, it is real, and it does really work. Um, to, we you, caught you generally catch kind of bigger halibut, which is you know it's okay if you. If you're after hell, but you know, yeah. But we caught like uh, the biggest one I ever caught on one of those hooks was like 273 pounds or whatever. <laughs> and Heather pulled it up, and and I was trying to train her to be able to pull it up and stun it and get it aboard. And she gets this one up and says, "Dad," she said, "Distance two or three hundred pounds," and I couldn't see it because of the water reflection. And uh, so I said, "She quit. She didn't want to deal with it." <laughs> Ed was humongous. I said, "This one's like three hundred pounds at least." I'm not exaggerating. I just handed him everything. I'm like. I just handed him all the stuff and backed off. I'm like, he did the well, I was, rest, I was doing a video and she said, in. stop or something. And I had to stop videoing. And uh, we did get the fish, but. Uh, did you? It was, um, it was huge. Yeah. So, we didn't necessarily want one that big, but, you know, there's people say, well, they don't taste good and uh, they're fine. Trust me. Or they're, you can't release. You can't release a halibut off one of those, so normally yeah. we wouldn't keep a big halibut right. like that. So, Mike, do you, who who handed that knowledge and those hooks or whatever? How do you pronounce it again? It starts with an N, right? Like in Tlingit, it's called Nach. 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 <laughs> I'm gonna. I'll mess it up, but. What, did someone hand that down to you or those hooks or, or did you make those hooks yourself or are these been uh, handed down and handed down or? Uh, I have one made by Grandpa Ralph, but when I was a young kid, I was back in the, this is my aunt and uh, my grandmother. But anyway, she was married to, uh, my aunt was married to a guy from Angoon. But anyway, he left a couple of hooks when they got divorced or separated. And I was looking at them, and uh, my grandmother explained to me that the opening has got to be this wide, and the length of the hook is like this, and she did it with her hand. So, uh, and okay, I always remembered that, but when Grandpa Ralph got when I got older, uh, I started, I was interested in these hooks. I never used them before. So Grandpa, could he knew how to make them. 
Uh, and uh, I tell him, Grandpa, I want to learn how to make um, wood hooks. And uh, okay, so he was in his 80s, like I don't know, 84 or five or whatever. And one day he came walking through the house. And he had a paper sack, and he had two hooks in there that he'd made, and he gave them to me. And he said, don't insult my hooks by hanging them on the wall. (laughs) I used them, and uh, they did catch fish. And so I started, uh, he had a pattern that I used a little bit, but I eventually, uh, I don't need a pattern anymore. I can can just make a hook now. I make all my own, and uh, they're... uh, Dad never sells his. You know, people want to buy them all, yeah. all the time. And that those words, you know, stuck with him. And they're not for decoration. They're for being used. And he put so much work into them. They're just yeah. not for you sale. Could, you couldn't make any money because I'm sort of perfectionist when it comes. And it takes days to make one. I don't work on them steady. You know, like yeah. pick one up. Sometimes I got half a dozen of them in the process. And you pick one up and work on it. And pick another one. And I said, why did I do that? And you correct it. Uh, but I've given a few of them away, but I've never sold one. Uh, and, uh, Heather, Heather's got a few. Uh, I probably have a dozen that I can pick and choose from, and sometimes we set six of them or eight, or you know, depending on what we're doing. So, are are you guys yeah. the only ones who are using that and doing it, or are there others in your community who do it? There's probably not very many, two or three, maybe. Oh, really? And this is that some, something that you you uh, if you went back generations tens you know the tens of generations hundreds and a thousand years this is how the blanket were catching halibut yeah absolutely i mean they made (laughs) they made the rope out of uh cedar bark Mm -hmm. and uh the binding on the hook itself is spruce root okay and uh the the barb was uh uh Bone from a bigger animal like uh, brown bear bone. Okay. Uh, deer bone is not strong enough. For, uh, just because the halibut is so so tough and so big. Uh, deer bone just not thick enough and it's too brittle. Uh, okay. Huh. You think about how, how this rope rope they make. You know, I made a little piece of it, and it takes like three hands to do it. My boy <laughs> made a whole string of it in school. I don't know, but I tried. To, I made a little chunk because I'm making a pre-contact hook with no metal or nothing. You know, and uh, I couldn't break it. It's really strong. Uh-huh. I mean, it is what it, it's really a, a challenge for like me to make it. I watched a video of an old lady in Canada somebody made, and she was making it, and they couldn't understand why she was doing that. She just knew how and was doing it, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so, the ropes were made of cedar. But the other thing that, you know, in 1770, the Spaniards came here, and they anchored up in Santa Cruz. Uh-huh. And um, they were trying to catch fish in uh, lots of canoes. There was a lot of natives there. 
And they were using those hooks then, and they were catching fish like crazy. And the 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 ship couldn't catch fish very well. They wound up trading uh, the natives for halibut, hmm. but they also traded for uh, herring. Uh, and one of the whoever was keeping the the log said that their nets were of the finest quality and they're i'm assuming that it was a dip net to dip net herring you know and it was in june so uh they they were able to trade herring and they also traded wolf bear uh can't remember what else but uh bear hides at the time so how did those people catch catch those animals yeah they didn't have any guns but they use what's called a deadfall. Yep. And that's how they, they were able to do it. So I asked Grandpa Ralph, I said, <laughs> they used to use, when I was a kid, some of them were still using deadfalls. He was one of them, <coughs> excuse me, to catch mink mm-hmm. and otter. I said, I want to learn how to make a deadfall. And he looked at me and he said, you got nice, good steel traps. He said, what do you want to make? learn how to make a deadfall for? <laughs> <laughs> and I never did learn how he was going to teach me, but I never did. Uh, we didn't get to that. Oh, but I would have loved to know how to do that, how how uh, he learned how to do it, you know? Yeah. Like, this is... So they, they didn't have a problem catching all those things, you know? No. And that's where I just... The the indigenous knowledge about the landscapes and the systems and how it all fits together, but the skills that it took, you know, deadfalls and making your own hooks with yeah. cedar bark and uh, spruce root and somehow finding uh, like octopus. How, how, where were they finding the octopus? I mean, I guess maybe they. In the inter intertidal right. zones where they're where they're not, not now, but they don't live. Yeah. Okay, so they have a, their, they have a den. You know, uh, we used mm-hmm. to get them all the time when we were kids. I haven't got any for a while, but maybe Heather and I could look, and maybe we'd get lucky. But they they make a a, a, a hole underneath a big rock, mm-hmm. and you can tell when they're active because there's all kinds of crab shells and stuff on the outside. They uh, when they're done eating, they Get rid of it. All that stuff comes out. Huh. Underneath those rocks is, uh, when I was a kid, we used uh, like a quarter-inch uh, steel rod with a little hook on the end of it. And uh, you'd reach in there and you'd, you'd uh, get a hold of them and make sure you got them. So hook good. And then you'd just pull on them and keep a steady strain. And then let it go like that, and then jerk real quick, and then you could get them out. Because huh. when you when you when you slacked off, they'd reach for another grip, you know. Uh-huh. And, and during that that brief instant, you could you could yank them out. And that's what you would use for halibut bait. Uh, you eat them or use them yeah. for bait, yeah. Yeah. Huh. And then they were always cleaned right there. Uh, you turn the head inside out, got the guts out. And you took that and you put it back in the hole and shoved it back in there. And uh, the old timers always said that when you do that, they'll always come back. Huh. 
<laughs> oh man this is so fascinating and, and uh, i hope people listening are able to put this in the context of wh- how long mike has been doing this how long he's been sharing this knowledge someone shared it with him you know he, he, what did you say grandpa ralph was that was that his name he shared a lot of this stuff with you and yeah. others and ralph james yeah and I I hope that 100, 200, 300 years from now, that this same knowledge is being handed down through this hands-on teaching method that that you you've shown Heather, and Heather is so interested in showing others. And if there's a benefit to social media, if there's a benefit to the modern world of communications, I hope that sharing these stories and these skills and and just giving a voice to what all of you do and how important these cultures and traditions are uh, i appreciate that you guys are willing to do that and mike i'm sure you're probably not a big fan of having heather having her phone and taking videos of you all the time but from someone like me who's on the outside looking in it it's really important what, what you guys are doing. You are sharing something that is more than just a skill. You, you're sharing something that gives people like me who would never be exposed to your culture and your traditions other than my trips up there. Every day I can log into Heather's Instagram account and learn something new about it. And I end up with so much more appreciation for what it takes and where where this knowledge has traveled over generations and millennia and uh i hope that you guys keep doing it well it is a challenge so heather is always on her phone texting for one but uh, (laughs) uh, when we do the videos it's first take because we don't do it numerous times till we get it right. Is you have to get it right the first time. Oh. <laughs> Nothing is scripted. It's one shot. And if I don't get it, I don't get it. You might get half of the first words, but then dad's like, okay, I'm done. Bye. And uh, that's, I think that's what makes it great too. And he's also yeah. funny. And we've, We've had offers from uh, the reality people, for lack of lack of a better term, to you know, I just can't bring myself to even consider anything like that. You know, it'd be, it'd be <laughs> too much. Good for you. Um, we're not acting here. We're we're actually doing what we do. Yeah. She gets, I think, get some good videos. I don't have Instagram, so I don't watch that stuff, but. <clears throat> she'll send me little stuff and um uh, what i like to hear about is when i go you know i get i'm lucky enough i get to see my dad every day and i go check in with him and say hi if, I, if we don't have anything planned but he'll he'll go like in the summer he was like a few times he said some somebody came up to me and said it's you <laughs> or are you that? Are you AK Moosey's dad? 
They have no interest in talking to me, but if they see him on the dock or in the store or wherever, they're I was up by they're like, I know up you. by Bellingham in a Cabela's store, and this guy comes up to me and says, "It's you. You're that famous guy on YouTube." And I said, "No, I'm not on YouTube." And he, he looked at my hand. And he said, "It is you." <laughs> <laughs> well, I I appreciate the authenticity to it, and I hope. I hope you just keep it that way. It's, I, I, I just feel, and I think other listeners and the number of people who've told me they've started following your page, Heather, is they, they said, thanks for turning me on to that. This is, this is so real and it's, it's teaching me so much that I might have never understood. It, it explains things that I, I would have no cause to understand how, well-intended people trying to, you know, protect salmon stocks thought they were doing the right thing, but it's going to put Mike and Heather out of business and out of food. And you talk about it. You talk about it from this organic, living it, breathing it standpoint, and it's very powerful. And you guys just think like, well, no, this is what we do. This is this is what we're doing. You know. We, I guess my point of that is to emphasize how it's way more important and way more impactful than maybe you guys realize. And uh, I don't know. We we like fresh food. We like the the best you can get, and we know what it is. But you yeah. know, one of the real joys of my life is I don't mind teaching. You know, like oh, this is secret. What you know to teach people how to process their own food and take care of the, the stuff they get is, is really worthwhile. Um, and it's hard to teach. Some people just can't seem to get it. Heather's pretty good now. She's been hanging out with me for quite a few years. She's got tremendous knowledge. But the real joy I've seen is uh, uh, seeing the grandkids. Uh, there's a little video Heather made of the two of them packing a basket of fish to the smokehouse, it just melts me whenever I look at it. (laughs) But to teach little kids and get them involved and get their hands dirty and is uh, probably the most rewarding thing that that I've seen in a long time. Well, I... Yeah, it's that and then other indigenous people who follow our page and reach out and say they have been disconnected from their culture for whatever reason Um, their parents moved or you know for all the reasons that we talked about how culture was removed from our lives and they said you know through that through our page they feel reconnected or or that they can learn about their culture because they don't have resources where they can, uh, where they're at. So that really means a lot to me that we can empower each other through, you know, social media and, and use modern technology to revitalize our culture and keep it alive is great. Yeah. Thank you for, this time and thank you dad i feel like i'm still in kindergarten now i'm gonna forever be a student (laughs) 
and feel like I'll never know enough and there's never going to be enough time. Well, you have a good basic background and uh, as life goes along, you learn how to do things better. So, you know, it's just part of growing up, I guess, but that's, that's how I learned. And, uh, I had some good teachers and, uh, I guess when you want to learn something, it's always good to go find somebody who knows how and makes it so much quicker and, and easier. You know, if you don't know something, go find somebody that does know. But in some cases, some of the stuff is uh, gone so far down the road that very few people know anymore. So, I mean, now we have technology that allow you to preserve it much better than, you know, so. Uh, 50 years ago and stuff so perhaps you lose a little less but you always lose something but, uh, but uh, i firmly believe that heather has a probably the strongest background of any person her age here in, in subsistence knowledge and just uh being boat wise and just learning a lot of different stuff there's well, still lots to learn but you know uh it's a, it's a good start. Well, I you've said something there along the way, Mike, and it's come across very uh, apparent in this entire conversation is how much you enjoy sharing and teaching, but also the sense of obligation you feel. And I think that's across all cultures that have a natural harvest aspect to them. I grew up in a hunting and fishing trapping culture where we ate, I mean, most of the stuff we ate when I was growing up, we got through hunting, fishing, foraging, or gardening. And this generational transfer of knowledge, I am so blessed that so many aunts and uncles and parents and grandparents and neighbors and community members took the time to invest in me. And I see that so apparent and and so important in in what you guys are doing and and it causes me to think that people want to say well we're this and we're that and they are this and they are that i think really there's a lot of it where generationally it's very important to all of us that that next generation understands these skills these this knowledge this this uh culture of of natural food harvest i don't care where you live uh it's just been there forever Uh, and uh it's probably way more present in watching the two of you interact than it is any other place that that we'd probably get a chance to look at it but you you've made it very clear to me mike how important it is that we share what we know also Yeah, I I think it is, and learning how to do things, how to take care of your food and and stuff like that. The one thing we don't share much is where we do this, where we get. There's just too much population here now to to just let everything out of the bag, so uh, it gets... It gets overexploited so fast. uh, These are coveted little places we go and we don't share too much of that, really. So, and don't, please don't. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's really yeah, last time we only share by accident sometimes, but it's uh, it really uh, 
there's a lot of people who don't understand only take what you need. You know what I mean? That's uh, it's a real problem. So yeah. Well, I've kept you guys for. Randy, Randy last time did we teach you last time how to say thank you and it? You, you did, Heather. Did... You tried, and I would. Hey, I, I know. I, I knew it. Was and uh, I'm embarrassed to say I <laughs> forgot. Like dad, Randy's like Randy's shrinking right now. No, like, I, oh, I, it's goodness cheese. Yeah, I, I, I was saying it almost like I want cheese on my burger or something. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you were laughing. You're like, no, Randy, this is it. So how do you, uh, tell, coach me again, Heather. Dad I, Dad, I made Randy a sea otter hat and sent it to him so he can wear it around Montana <laughs> and everywhere else he goes. Yep. Uh, I don't, uh, it's not there yet, but it should be there in a couple of days. And yeah, um, Thank you. Is goodness cheese. Yeah. Better. Better. I've been. Yeah. I, I I went back and listened to that podcast, and I was like thinking to myself, "Boy, Randy, you really you really messed that up." But uh, goodness cheese. I'm, I'm I had gonna, a pair of sea otter mittens that I used to wear too that are are very warm too. So, well, I got to get Heather, who is a gifted artesian, to. Uh, Make make us some mittens. Yeah. Well, I I'm the one crazy guy who walks around Bozeman in the winter time with a beaver hat that I I trapped the beaver. I, I did everything other than I knew somebody who made hats, so they made it for me. I have uh, a muskrat uh, hand muff that I when I'm out duck hunting. Everyone else is trying to keep their hands warm with you know wearing gloves or something. I'm like no. Just get yourself a, a fur muff that you wrap around your waist. And uh, so I'm the one guy in Bozeman that walked around with all kinds of these fur articles that, you know, that I've trapped. And and I tell people the story when they ask me, well, where'd you get that? Oh, uh, well, the beaver was flooding a golf course last March. And <laughs> so I went and trapped him and uh, and people are like, what? And so I can't tell you how proud I'm going to be to walk around town with that sea otter hat heather i i i my wife is she she texted me today she said hey your hat is going to be here on friday because i've been talking about <laughs> it i showed her the pictures you sent me and everything and i thank you so much that, that means the world to me and thank uh, you. it means a lot to me to have you well, wear it thank you think, and thank you mike and heather I the criteria I, I use for gloves, I got big hands, so I have a hard time finding gloves. But the the criteria that it has to pass is you got to get your hands like this wet, and then try to put them on. If you can't get them on, that glove doesn't pass muster. You have to, <laughs> to put on depth. There you go. That's a good. Because when you're cruising in the skiff, you never know what. Um, it's always gloves off in a big hurry. Sometimes, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Do you, Mike? Do you wear gloves or mittens? Which do you wear more? I of? wear gloves. Gloves. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm I'm a mitten guy, uh, and I wear them big and with a lot of extra space, just so the air pockets are there, and it seems to be warmer i think well it gets cold here too it's a different kind of cold with montana you know but i I don't know if it's okay to put a plug in for somebody but one of the best gloves i have is uh the the qu ones okay and and they're fingered gloves they're pretty Mm -hmm. good yeah and you can get them on and off when your hands are down okay really easy well you 
Yeah, your hands get wet like if you pull something aboard and then you're freezing. But dad went glove shopping and the guy goes, can I help you? And he said, yeah, I'm looking for gloves. And he couldn't find any that fit because his dad's hands are <laughs> ginormous. And the guy looks at his hands and goes, whoa, you're a worker. <laughs> <laughs> his dad's got huge hands and he's missing uh, fingers. And these are the first gloves he's found were. that. Work cool. real well. So. <laughs> well, anyway, when you're we're out driving this gift, you got to steer, you got to run mm-hmm. the boat, you got to have your rifle. I mean, this is a whole bunch of stuff going on all the time. And you never know when it's going to happen, but you, you need to be ready. And you know, it is quite a lot of fun. You know, yeah, I have a great time. I don't know what Heather thinks. I mean, we're eating <laughs> around the rocks and kelp and everything else. You know, it just never seems to get worried. You know, <laughs> uh, well, you I, must have, oh, we even bounced over a whale. We bashed a log. We bashed a log like a week ago, and no damage. And that, no, we had to go in so slow, and we said, "Well, I guess I have time to spin out on <laughs> going in at two knots or whatever we were doing." I said, "Well, I better get to work." I mean, this <laughs> log was uh, like six inches around, and it was about. 10 or 15 feet long and I couldn't see it until we're right on it and I couldn't turn or do nothing so I throttled down as hard as I could and we still smacked it but it spun the propeller uh, so we could only go at five knots to come home and we had like an hour and a half to to get home uh, and we accidentally jumped a whale that was sleeping and it was down and then when it came up to take a breath we didn't know and it came up right when we were going and blew over it like a ski jump. <laughs> and it, it sounded like we were hitting concrete. It was so loud. And then it like, I hung on so tight and we were airborne and dad was holding onto the steering wheel and he looked down and he landed and he said, I could see right down its blowhole. And then <laughs> <laughs> that has a real dry sense of humor. So I was like shaking after that. I was like, so nervous and, uh, anyway, we got back to the dock later and we tie up and we get off on the dock and he goes, there's whale skin on the boat. Like he was joking. But... <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, is that your first, uh, that was, wild. was that your first time ever having that happen with a whale, Mike? Oh, uh, no, I've come close, but that was, I couldn't turn. I just had to go straight. I, the only thing I could do is to slow down, but we still hit him at probably over 20 knots and we went completely airborne <laughs> it was so loud and like we didn't see it and then it just came up to take a breath and i was going whale 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 and then i just hold on <laughs> gripped on as, as hard as i could and there we went flying. so as we we're flying over it of not no joke i could see right down his nostrils and uh and then the I was wondering how the boat was going to land. You know, I didn't know, but <laughs> it did just fine. You know, I mean, <laughs> looks like one of those James Bond movies or something. <laughs> but if I if I'd have tried to turn, it might have been, you know, it yeah. might have been much worse. So. Right. Oh man, the whale was okay. He was puffing and getting out of there, but yeah. 
I'm sure it was <laughs> shock to both of us, you know. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it would be a shock to anybody, <laughs> and probably the whale. <laughs> well, Mike and Heather, we've been here for two and a half hours, and it seems <laughs> it seems like it's only been about ten minutes for me. I I could talk forever. I. I want to thank you both for being who you are and telling the stories and, and the knowledge and the indigenous uh, just culture of, of food. And I hope that you'll continue to do it and know that my podcast, my YouTube channels, any of my platforms that you ever feel would be beneficial to telling your stories and, and sharing more people or with more people about the food and the importance of, of your cultures of, of how food is, is harvested. And like you said, Mike, it's the best food that there is. Uh, I hope that you would take me up on the offer that at any time. Thank you. You'd, uh, you're welcome to, to call me up and say, let's do this. And whatever I could do to help. I, I think your message is so important and so refreshing. Uh, I, Thank you. I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time yeah. today. If you come back to Alaska, you know, let us know. Well, I just will happen to be up there next May. I uh, I, I lucked out, and uh, I'll be up there. I, I don't know what I'll be doing. If I'll be fishing, I have a bear tag, but uh, I don't know. I love bear hunting because it takes me out there and makes me explore and do things. And, oh, I'd have a question for you, maybe both of you. This bear that I took last year is the sweetest bear meat I've ever had on a spring bear. Any idea why that would be? Where did you get it? Uh, on your island. I mean, oh, right, we, Prince we of Wales. Yeah, we don't right like you said we don't want to talk about because it'll get exploited. Uh yeah. some people will have seen us out there so well, they know. Well, I mean, did you get it on the beach or Yeah, or, I got uh, it I got it in an estuary. It's you know, big green estuary a creek came out. Uh obviously he'd been eating grass but I, most spring bears are really really strong and this one almost has like a sweet berry taste to it. Yeah. Some of them, mine wasn't strong at all either. Some of them live up on the mountain, you know, and they never come down to eat mm -hmm. fish or anything. They eat berries and grass up there, and, and I think that those are really desirable. But the, you know, they'd be much harder to get to. Okay, I must have lucked, must have lucked out and got one of those ones because he's he is as fine of a bear as I've ever eaten. I know a, uh, there's an island up here that's got several bears on it, and they, uh, what they're eating there is mostly uh, so they've got all the deer pretty much, not the older ones, but they catch all the fawns. But they're eating slough berries mm -hmm. is their main diet. Okay. Those would be good eating ones probably. Yeah. It probably describe one that you're eating, although yeah. it's at sea level. It's uh, those are pretty much berry eaters on there. Okay. Well, yeah. If I get back to Alaska, trust me, I am gonna seek the two of you out and uh, shake your hands. May, May is a good it. month. There's a lot of salmon around the uh, halibut. There's a lot of things to do in May. 
Okay. Well, yeah. I I don't want to be Thank you, Randy. I don't want to be a nuisance to anybody, but if you are telling me to stop by and say hello, <laughs> I will, I will give you an advance notice when I'm going to be in town. Yeah. So. Let us know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really have to fish anymore. So I, you know, I've tapered that back and I have more fun on my speedboat, you know, uh, <laughs> out, whatever, just having a great time. Uh, well, I've had that speedboat yeah. since 91 and I think I'm working on my sixth outboard on it. So oh, wow. I've, I've got a lot of miles on it. <laughs> Yeah, in what thirty three, almost thirty three years. Yeah, and the Heather's pretty brave. She goes with me everywhere, and, and uh, where most people would even think. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I get jealous when I can't go. So anytime Dad texts me and says whatever time, I say okay. And I just, that's my priority, but yeah, well, my earbuds are going to die, yep. but we're wrapping it up anyway. So. Yeah, we better get going, let the audience back, but please, anytime I can help. And if you want to be back on these platforms, you just let me know. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you both so much, Mike and Heather. All right. Take care. When the sun